On this episode of Business Interrupted, you're not going to get to that stage unless you try, unless you take risks. Find opportunities to talk to senior people about their resilience concerns. Find opportunities to talk about severe and plausible scenarios. Run an exercise at a senior level that might put you under pressure personally because it raises your profile (laughs) makes things a little bit more high risk for you if things go wrong but look if you don't do that you're never going to get out of the broom cupboard if you are stuck in the broom cupboard writing those business continuity plans business as usual is challenged every day it's not about if disruption occurs it's when on this original show from castellan solutions we're hearing from the world's best leaders as they get into specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada, for this scenario's episode. Resilience, security, continuity. What do these words mean to you? After the disruptions of 2020 and the first half of 2021, Business leaders are more concerned than ever with overcoming the next major obstacle. This renewed focus has been named the resilience movement. We're diving into this trend with expert James Krask. James is a senior vice president and head of resilience advisory at Marsh, a London-based consultancy on business resiliency. Now let's level set what is the resilience movement. To me, it's about preventing disruption to the organization regardless of cause. Causes aren't limited to some of the traditional threats, such as weather events, technology disruptions, and the like. It can be supply chain disruption and disruption caused by a cyber attack. Castellan believes, just like hundreds of its clients, that it's about when, not if, a disruption will occur. An organization can't prevent all forms of disruption. So when an organization experiences a disruption, it's about responding in a timely way to decrease impact. And when we're talking about impact, It's not just working to control internal pain, it's about minimizing the pain on the market and the customer. The resilience movement is the new normal, heavily driven by board level, executive, and regulator expectations and mindsets. Leaders are asking the tough questions and they're very much expecting decreased disruption and a capability focused on bend, not break. In addition to his role at Marsh, James also leads the International Organization for Standardization Group responsible for ISO 22301. At this point, you're probably wondering, what is ISO 22301? And I'm glad you've asked. Essentially, it's a compilation of best practices organized by a global set of experts that clarify what business continuity is all about. Now let's join the conversation, starting with James sharing the changes he's seen over the last 12 to 18 months. I think quite a bit has changed, doesn't it? In the past, you and I have spoken about this and I've had this conversations with many other resilience professional. The, the challenge has always been, how do you get resilience onto the agenda at executive or board level? Well, now for many organizations, it is the agenda. They're in survival mode for you know, in, in, in dealing with you know, severe weather or the fallout from COVID or some of the political instability that we're seeing across, across the globe as well. The number one change has been the level of interest and scrutiny that is being given to the topic. And that, uh, that's a positive thing. It probably feels quite uncomfortable for some that may not have had that kind of scrutiny in the past. 
being asked quite difficult questions by their boards. But I think it should be welcomed. It's a positive change. A couple of other things that I think have, have, have drastically changed as well. I think COVID showed us that the the scope and depth of some of our planning needed to be wider and deeper. I think too many plans were focused on recovering discrete bits of infrastructure, an individual building, an individual resort, or weren't really thinking about global emergencies that would last a very long time. You know, I picked up a number of plans recently, and they, the assumptions list at the beginning of the plan, it, it specifically writes out the risk of a global event impacting on all office locations or all production locations at once. COVID's proved that to be to be a, a false assumption to make. So I think we'll see more scrutiny in the breadth of planning, the scope and the depth of that planning. And supply chain, I think that's another, we're only just starting to see some changes here, I think, but I think that's going to be, a, we're going to see radical changes in, in that sort of element of resilience. I wonder whether the just-in-time structures that we have used for many generations now and have come to rely upon in order to deliver cheap products and services to, to consumers, I wonder whether that's going to survive in some sectors. For me, just-in-time works very well in an environment that is stable, that is predictable, you know, where you don't need to have huge amounts of inventory on the factory floor for a rainy day. But COVID, climate change effects, the political instability that we've been seeing, I think that potentially challenges it. We can look actually to what the car industry did in response to the, the earthquake and tsunami in Japan in 2011. There's quite a nice study there around how they used that as an opportunity to, to change some of their supply chain management processes to make the organisation resilient. So to recap, it's scope and depth of planning, it's changes in the way that we manage our supply chains, but the positive is we're now being listened to, which is a good thing. I'm glad you said the word listen to because I might have used words similar to that a moment ago because you started with leadership engagement or leadership interest. How do we meet that interest? How do we meet at their level? What's the practice? What's the skill? What's the method to not only engage once but engage continuously to keep the momentum on this very important topic? Because I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I've long felt that business continuity and resilience professionals are good at what they do in a technical sense. But in order to be successful at a more senior level within organizations and properly connect at board level and exec, there's a whole bunch of softer skills that you, you need around relationship management, communication, just simply understanding the business and, and making your technical expertise relevant to the executive. I think the resilience professionals of the future will spend more time honing those skills than they perhaps have in the past you know, in, in that they've been focused more on the technical skills. We'll always need those technical skills, but it's almost a given that you know how to write a business continuity plan, how to run an exercise. But the next step on from that is making that relevant to senior leadership. And one of the big things I'm seeing in kind of client conversations I've been having in the role that I, I'm sitting in at the moment is more interest from senior leaders in scenario analysis and risk quantification. So they've got this risk radar of you know, 101 different things that could happen to the organization tomorrow or in next week or in a few years. Where do they need to prioritize? That's a skill set I think that some of the more traditional business continuity practitioners need to learn. Having that skill set is going to be hugely valuable because you can then have a conversation at exec level about where to invest in protecting the organization balanced against the likelihood of risk and the impact of 
of risk. It challenges some of the, the core concepts of business continuity. It's interesting you mentioned some of those skills, business acumen, communications, some of the others that I think build upon that or complement it, I've heard over and over again is, I would love our business continuity, our resilience professionals to be more conceptual, to imagine different situations, to imagine different ways in which we can, that they can coach the business on being able to operate a little bit differently until returning to normal. Another one that's come up quite a bit is being tenacious, being really driven to being able to don't accept a bad answer, don't accept an incomplete answer, drive us towards a solution, get us better and better over time. In other words, don't be passive. And those are a couple that I've heard recently in more of my exact conversations, the kind of the ask, be more conceptual, be more tenacious. And I think it complements everything that you just said. I totally agree. And it links back to there's going to be greater scrutiny over the quality of our recovery and resilience arrangements. Therefore, when you stand up in front of the exec of the board, you need to be able to demonstrate that you're delivering quality insights and useful assurance over the effectiveness of plans. One of the things we need to get better at is harnessing our imagination in a more effective way to develop more robust, more rigorous, more testing scenario exercises. How many times have you and I have been in a, an exercise, some of which I'm sure we've written ourselves, that get to the point where the fire is out and then everybody goes home? They don't really talk about the, the recovery process, you know, which when COVID is going to be months, if not years, and we never really get to that stage. I think some of our exercises in the past, COVID has proven to us that they have been a little bit too superficial. And talking about scenarios for a moment, there's a lot of interesting and in, in some new practice regarding severe yet plausible scenarios. And we're seeing that brought up a lot in financial services. That concept is valuable, not just in financial services. And the reason is it makes the concept of disruption real in the minds of executives. It gives them something to you know, say, yeah, oh, so you're telling me that's what we're working on. We're working to protect ourselves against a situation like that. And Certainly, COVID gives something very concrete, supply chain disruptions, very concrete, but building that library of those severe yet plausible scenarios, something that we can eventually test against, measure against, it makes it real. That's what I'm hearing over and over again. Are you hearing the same? Yeah, I would go further and say that what that concept allows us to do is move to a point where we can help executives assume that failure is going to happen. We don't know. Business continuity professionals have always said, you don't worry about the likelihood, you worry about the impact and you manage the impact. In having that conversation, in my experience at senior level, they always come back to, but what will happen? What will cause that impact? Talk me through the scenario. And actually, if you've got those severe or in some cases extreme but plausible scenarios, you can use that to paint quite an interesting picture. You know, it gives them a sense of a very bad day in the office that they want to, to avoid. And it, as you say, it really helps them to conceptualize what the effects of a crisis might look like on their organization and on them as individuals, as members of staff. The idea of working to prevent versus being really good at responding and recovering, has the prevent expectation increased or is it the same? Is it less? What are you seeing on that? Particularly in organizations that 
delivering some kind of production environment. And I think in those industries, it's easier to, to some degree to conceptualize what the effect of a disruption would be on their value chain, on their production process. You do the analysis of, of what needs to be recovered, when it needs to be recovered. And at that point, it's useful to then go back to the beginning and say, what could we do in advance of a disruption to actually engineer some of that disruption risk out of the system? And in a production environment, that could be holding stock in numerous different locations around the globe, having another production line that can be uh, retasked to, to produce whatever it is that's being produced in another location, having reciprocal arrangements with, with other producers to, to step in to, to support. Now, some people would consider that traditional business continuity and resilience. Others would consider that part of the, the business planning process. But actually, resilience professionals have an opportunity and a skill set that helps them deliver the, that, you know, or achieve that opportunity to actually help re-engineer an organization to, to make them more, more resilient. I, I think we have a role to play not just downstream of a disruption, but also upstream of it. So I mentioned I was going to talk a little bit about and get your perspective on kind of some of the emerging expectations, particularly uh, regulatory requirements and the like, financial services coming out of the Bank of England, as an example, the new policy paper on operational resilience. I'm sure that's top of mind every day for you. It certainly is for me as well. And it, for many, it introduces some thoughts and ideas or maybe reinforces some concepts that are valuable for any sector. But what's your perspective on this? Is there anything that stands out either net new or reinforces something that's incredibly valuable that we all should be taking into account? Firstly, I think it's a welcome step forward, particularly for the financial services industry. In my view, some of what the Bank of England and the PRA and FCA are calling for, other industries are already delivering and have been for many years. You take a car manufacturer. Yeah, they, they have a very good understanding of what their end-to-end -end process is to get that finished car to their consumers. And some of the concepts of operational resilience have been applied throughout that production process for, for many years. It's a big step forward, though, because it elevates the, the discussion on resilience to what I would describe as the value chain level, looking at those business services that cut across the organization. For too long, and as I alluded to this earlier when I, I talked about scope of business continuity plans, I think for too long in a lot of organizations, the focus of planning has been limited to individual locations, individual resources, and they haven't really looked at how the whole system works together to deliver an outcome to a customer at the end of that value chain process. So I think focusing on that value chain is hugely beneficial. I think a lot of what is being asked of banks in particular is particularly new. It's really an extension of a lot of work that is already happening and either under business continuity or operational risk. It's applying some of the tools that those banks have, have, have used for many years in a slightly different way. So it is a little bit foreign. The big difference, though, is encouraging staff to think beyond a bad day in the office and think about scenarios that would lead to catastrophic and material impact, either to consumers or market stability. I've noticed it takes a little while for colleagues in banks to get to a point where they're comfortable talking about those kind of outcomes because they don't ever want to see it happen. They always want to. They talk about the, the recovery time being well within that, uh, what the Bank of England calls impact tolerance, which is the point at which things get really bad. So it takes a while to warm them up. But once they're there, it's an enormously useful vehicle to, to stress test the organization against. 
So you talked about business, use words, business services a moment ago. You mentioned the consumer in the markets. It's interesting to me when I compare our work in ISO to some of these concepts, the idea of business services, you might argue is close to, or maybe similar to products and services. Those words were in ISO 22301 since what, 2012. Yet people are looking at these as saying it's a little bit new to them. What's the difference in your mind? Is there something new there or is it a reinforcement of what we saw with 22301? I don't think it's drastically new. I think a lot of the the concepts and principles that sit within the operational resilience policy can be found between the lines in uh, in the ISO documentation. Not necessarily specifically referenced, but it's there. But this is more about how you apply it. You know, at ISO, we don't talk or give detailed guidance about how you deliver the intent of the standard. So what the regulator has done here in the UK on um, for, for financial institutions is to talk more about the how, effectively. And even then, they're relatively... Uh, relatively light touch in providing that kind of direction and guidance. So I think they complement each other. I don't think operational resilience is drastically new. The one thing that it, in my view, does do differently, perhaps, is make it clear that you assume that disruption will happen and therefore you need to plan accordingly. It puts greater emphasis on that incident and crisis response and communication with customers. And it puts an onus on thinking about going beyond the recovery time that you would normally accept in order to bring back business business activity. So that impact tolerance is going further beyond your recovery time objective, say, that you, you typically, typically set. And you and I have both witnessed uh, international experts debate content for an ISO standard. And one of the other things I think that stands out to me is that even though we've talked about how reputation impairment has an impact or has, has an influence on setting business continuity requirements, I think this new set of expectations really drives home the pain on the customer and the impact on the market. And I think that's an important consideration. And that's one I think will certainly, I think, be long lasting in our profession is being a little bit more, outs- like you said, outside the organization and uh, not just within the four walls of a building for, for sure, even extending past the supply chain, that end-to-end value chain now is multiple suppliers deep all the way to the customer and how we reach the customer. And, and I think that's pretty profound. And I think that's an important evolution as well. There are no pitfalls, I think, that are easy to fall down in implementing operational resilience. Delivering the planning at the business service level requires some degree of mapping of those business services and i've seen that delivered at various different levels of detail from something that is relatively high level but delivers just enough in order to get to the next stage of the process through to something that has taken an army of consultants an awful lot of time effort and costed the the client a significant amount of money but in my view, probably doesn't necessarily give them much more benefit than having just got a reasonable understanding of those mapping processes. There's a potential to get lost in the detail very quickly. And really, the approach that I've been taking with clients is to deliver enough to get to the point where we understand criticality to the level of detail that we need in order to get to the next stage. Any more than that, you could argue, is wasted effort. That's not always going to be the case. Perhaps over time, adding details that help you identify or expose what may be commonly known or previously known as hidden cracks, vulnerabilities, 
places where you might be single-threaded. Over time, exposing those and being able to prioritize those, as you said, through some risk quantification efforts. I think this is where a lot of these new practices, combined with some of the, the regulatory guidance and the boots-on-the-ground experiences that we're all developing now, where it all kind of crosses. And I think that's important. And it goes back to what I said before. I think probably one of the most common expectations I've been hearing from executives is, help me figure out how to prevent and prevention oftentimes starts with knowing where your vulnerabilities are, especially in a prioritized manner. We talked about some of the, the skills necessary for the resilience or the business continuity professional going forward. Any other advice that you'd give in, in terms of what you're seeing working, what you're seeing not working, anything you want to conclude with advice, somebody maybe that's, maybe they're new or maybe they've been around for a few years. Now they're growing up into a kind of a new normal. Any thoughts on that? For me, if I was new to this topic or looking to expand my understanding of the topic and embed myself within a business more effectively, I'd be reaching out to people in operational risk, people in other sort of risk management disciplines across the business to see what we can learn from them. I think for too long, we've built artificial barriers between some of those functions and some of those disciplines. But certainly what I've learned in, in, in the work I've delivered with financial institutions on operational resilience is that those barriers are entirely unhelpful in delivering a, a consistent and aggregated approach to resilience. So that might need a little bit of pride swallowing, but pick up the phone to your colleagues in risk and see what they can offer to the process. That's the first thing. Second thing is, if, if you're in a, as many are in a business continuity role that is relatively traditional in its focus, but you want to break out of that and start talking about the strategic kind of play that resilience can support with and uh, the group level, really, you're not going to get to that stage unless you try, unless you take risks. Find opportunities to talk to senior people about their resilience concerns. Find opportunities to talk about severe and plausible scenarios, run an exercise at a senior level that might put you under pressure personally, because it raises your profile, <laughs> makes things a little bit more high risk for you if things go wrong. But look, if you don't do that, you're never going to get out of the broom cupboard if you are stuck in the broom cupboard writing those business continuity plans. James, thank you so much for joining me today on Business Interrupted. If someone wanted to reach out to follow up with you uh, directly, what's the best way for them to reach you? So reach me on my email, probably. So that's james.crask at marsh.com. When I think about getting started on the new normal, meaning implementing an approach and mindset to prevent disruption, as well as successfully respond, I think of three things. Number one, naming important business services to get crisp on scope, meaning focusing on the right aspects of preparedness. Number two, setting impact tolerance to ensure everyone's clear on objectives when it comes to resilience. And three, identifying plausible scenarios to make the concept of resilience real and concrete for all participants, especially leadership. Castellan's created two very comprehensive documents in case you're interested in more information. The first is Getting Started with Operational Resilience, which offers a five-step framework. And the second is a guide to creating plausible scenarios, again, creating those severe yet plausible scenarios that you might want to test against, which ultimately make resilience real for executive management. To grab these two documents, head over to castellonbc.com and specifically the resources section, or check out the show notes, which are linked below. 
Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this scenario's episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to castellonbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.